Um, right now, let's have that word of prayer before we begin. So I invite you to bow your hearts and your heads with me at this time. Father in heaven, we surely thank you for all the wonderful things that you've given to us. A beautiful day and a Sabbath day, and it's just wonderful to come together uh, with like believers to rest from our spiritual labors and to join in chorus in singing praises to thy name. And Father, we thank you not only for the Sabbath and, and for your wonderful love towards us. We're thankful for the mercy that you show to us uh, moment by moment. We thank you for the gift of Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit that helps us. We thank you so much, Lord, uh, for the angels who work untirelessly uh, for our uh, protection and, and helping to guide us down the narrow way. We pray that you will bless them. Uh, Father, we ask, though, that you will forgive us for our sins. And uh, we pray that uh, you will enlighten us as to the truth. Uh, give us the grace that we need uh, to change these um, habits into righteous ones and to overcome these things that we may bring glory to thy name. Father, we lift up before you those on uh, our prayer lists. We pray that you be very near to those that we know that are in the hospital this time. Um, be with our families, our uh, Rollins' mother and Susan's mother. Be with my daughter. Um, and be with, uh, please be very near to Kayla's aunt. And uh, those unspoken prayers, Lord, we pray that you will uh, hear them and answer them according to thy will. And I pray, Lord, that you'll give me the words to speak today. The hearts will be ready to hear the truth, that it will be the truth, not my opinions, and that we may be better prepared for this enemy uh, that uh, wants our death, our eternal death. And so, Lord, I thank you again so much for hearing this prayer, and I pray it in the name of Jesus, who is worthy to be praised. Amen. Amen. The last time we were together, we, we looked at examples of demon possession involving those who were considered, or you could consider them good members of the church, and those who were in church leadership. Um, you see, friends, our personal choices to disobey God have consequences, no matter if our name is on the church membership roll. There are many people who think, oh, just, I got my name on that church roll, so... It, it really doesn't matter what I do as long as my name's on that roll. And when the roll is called up yonder, I'm going to be there. And that's not true. But, uh, uh, you know, I want to continue in our series. You know, we looked at those things. I want to continue in our series, Spiritual Possession. This is part five. Uh, by taking a look at times when demons, first of all, controlled a group of people as well as examples of those who choose to be possessed or united with Satan, and see what we can learn from, from these examples. And I want to start off in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Now, I've have a, I have a lot I want to share with you today, so I'm going to be moving along, I hope, uh, a little bit more quickly than before. But let's go to Matthew 27, and this is where Pilate has Jesus standing there, and he has Jesus on one side, Barabbas on the other, and he's before the people. 
We begin on verse 20, and it says, But the chief priests and elders, who's that, who's that say? Who is it? It's the chief priests and who? The elders. And what are the next words? Persuaded the multitude, okay, that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. You know something very interesting about this, just, just a side note. This was rather early in the day. Now, this is at the Passover, and you have upwards, it, it could have been, I've read estimates, uh, from 1 million to 10 million Jews all around Jerusalem at this time. That's rather remarkable, isn't it? And, and there were a number of Jews that had come in from Galilee, and that's where Jesus was better known. And they, they were out and around Jerusalem. But this is early in the day. And remember when they took Jesus to trial, it was through the night, right? They wanted to do it under the cover of darkness. And so they bring Jesus before Pilate before a lot of those people from Galilee could come in <laughs> and maybe influence themselves, influence the outcome here. But it says here, the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas to destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor, isn't it interesting that it's the Roman governor who says, Why? <laughs> what evil hath he, has he done? But notice the reaction. But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a, what? Tumult was made. Pay attention to that. He took water, washed his hands for the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it? Then answered all the people, and they said, what? His blood be on us and on our children. In fact, that happened. They broke the covenant there with God, and then some 70 years later, destruction in Jerusalem. Yeah. They had no protection. But here you'll notice that uh, the Jews eagerly accepted responsibility for the death of Jesus, didn't they? In fact, it almost appears like they were boasting about that course of action. And when you read later on, you know, you get into Acts and you go later on, the apostles later charged the leaders of the nation as murderers of Christ, right? And the leaders, forgetting their earlier acceptance of this responsibility of putting Jesus to death, they resented the charge that they put Jesus to death. Isn't that interesting? That's what sin does and self does. It deflects, doesn't it? But the Jerusalem mob, which Matthew said well, here was a tumult, and Josephus, uh, you read any of his writings, he repeatedly describes this as riotous, this group. It was fully under the control of the religious leaders, and we learned earlier in our study about these uh, demon possession that these leaders were possessed of demons. Now let me share this with you. This is from the book Desire of Ages, and it's uh, pages 733 to 734 around in, in that area. And she's speaking about this. And she says, Like the bellowing of wild beasts came the answer of the mob, 
Release unto us Barabbas. Louder and louder swelled the cry, Barabbas, Barabbas. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? Pilate asked. She says, Again, the surging multitude roared like demons. And catch this. She says, Demons themselves in human form were in the crowd. And what could be expected but the answer, let him be crucified. Satan led the cruel mob in its abuse of the Savior. So, the mob was rapidly getting out of control, and a riot was in the making, for which Pilate, you know, he'd have to give account to his superiors in Rome if that were to happen. And then Pilate began to realize that well, every attempt he made to secure the consent of the people and their leaders to release Jesus, what did it do? It only served to increase, uh, increase their unreasoning fury. They were getting more furious the more he addressed them. Now, what character traits were on display here by the people? Were they those traits of people who were filled with the Holy Spirit? Or were those uh, traits of people who were uh, filled with demons? What had spurred on the crowd to behave in such a way? Well, the leaders of Israel, we already know, they were possessed. And there were demons, as she said, in human form, who were in the crowd And what was the behavior of the crowd again? It turned the group of people from spectators into what? Into a mob. And and, and not just a mob, but a mob that was gearing up to riot. And if you look at history, I mean, look at our country today. You'll get people who, 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 they may start out as spectators, but when you get a whole group together... Um, oftentimes you get them built up into a frenzy, they turn into a mob. And a mob is a group of people who, who are controlled, in most cases, controlled by uh, demonics. Because they, they move to riot. This is why, you know, Moses and others said, you know, you don't follow a group to do evil, right? Now, what does riot, the word riot, mean? Webster's 1828 uh, edition gives this as uh, the definition of riot. First, it gives the noun. It says, uh, for riot, in a general sense, tumult or uproar. And that's uh, what... um, What we read there in Matthew, isn't it? A tumult. The second thing it says is uproar. Wild and noisy festivity. Okay? That kind of goes along, isn't it? Right? Another thing it says, and most people don't get this part. uh, They don't uh, usually think of that when the word riot is used. He says, Webster says, it can mean excessive and expensive feasting. Isn't that interesting? Now, most people don't 
don't think of that. When you think, hear the word riot, you think of a tumult, an uproar, but you don't think of excessive and expensive feasting, do you? The fourth uh, definition he gives is luxury. Isn't that interesting? I've never thought of luxury. I've, I've known about the excessive and, and uh, expensive feasting, but I've never thought of luxury. Now, he talks about the verb for riot. He says to revel. To run to excess in feasting, drinking, or other sensual indulgences. To luxuriate, to be highly excited. To banquet, to live in luxury, to enjoy. To raise an uproar or sedition. Now, number four there is kind of what's going on here in this instance in Matthew, isn't it? So, what was Pilate afraid was happening at that moment? What was he afraid of? He was afraid of a, a tumult, a riot you know, uh, an uproar or sedition, wasn't he? And so the crowd was led by demons to raise an uproar against whom? Was it against Pilate? No, it was against who? It was against Jesus, wasn't it? And uh, so, but uh, but I wanted to take us just a second here. Do you notice the other definitions for riot didn't have anything to do with sedition or anything like that. It has to do with fleshly passions, doesn't it? Well, notice what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 13. Notice what he says that we can compare to this mob that we've been reading about here, that we read about in Matthew 27. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 9, he says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Now, uh, next time we're going to talk about what opens a person up for demon possession, and this is part of it. Those who walk after the flesh. Those who are lusting. Those who, as he says, lust of uncleanness. And, and, but he goes on, he says, and despise government. Really, that's better translated as despise lordship. And it's actually referring directly to Jesus, the Savior. So they despise Jesus, the Savior. Isn't that what we see here in Matthew 27? Peter goes on, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. The clause there literally reads, they do not tremble when blaspheming glories. And it refers actually to the members of the Godhead. So when he says they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, they're talking, he's talking about they're not afraid to talk evil against, the, against God is what Peter's saying. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts... Now remember, compare what Peter's saying here to that mob that we just read about in Matthew 27. But these, as natural brute beasts... Uh, the Greek there means irrational creatures. They're irrational. Keep that in the back of your mind. Made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness 
as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. That literally uh, says counting riot a pleasure. That's what the Greek says. And the word for pleasure is the Greek word hedone. That's where you get hedonistic, the word hedonistic. And we're kind of, we're really in a he, back to a hedonistic society, aren't we? Where pleasure is uh, people's God. And they love pleasures more than they love God. What the Bible says, right? And that's the word for pleasure. It often implies, you know, sensual gratification. Whereas uh, the, the Greek word for riot, in this sense, is trufe. It means softness, luxurious living. So Peter describes these, and he's talking about these false teachers who say that uh, they know God, but they don't. Uh, he, he's describing these false teachers as indulging in those sensual lusts that belong to the darkness of night, yet esteeming them as legitimate, happy experiences that are above reproach, and so they do them all during the daylight hours, for all can see. And he ends up saying, uh, spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. And so I, I wanted to bring that to your attention when you talk about riots and their demon... A riot essentially is demon controlled. Why is it demon controlled? You've got a group of people here who are, as Peter says, they're walking after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And, the, and, and when they come together, they lose all reasoning. See? They become a mob. Have you ever heard you know, the, the saying, a mob mentality? And so as we looked at these, Two, two uh, scriptures here, Matthew 27 here in Second Peter. There are degrees of riot, you could say, but both are moved by what? They're moved by fleshly passions, and those fleshly passions is what opens people up to be controlled by demons. And these demon-possessed false teachers of God led a fleshly-minded people to raise a tumult, to raise a riot in rejecting Christ. Let's go back to the desire of ages. Speaking of this Matthew 27 here where they chose Barabbas. Desire of ages, page 736. She says, but he, that's Pilate, did not understand the fanatical hatred of the priests for him. That's Jesus. Who, as the light of the world, had made manifest their darkness and error. They had moved the mob to a mad fury. And again, priests, rulers, and people raised that awful cry, crucify him, crucify him. What does she say? She says that they had a fanatical hatred for Christ. And this really defines a demon, doesn't it? And, and demons wish to lead those who follow Jesus into one fanatical form or another. What is fanaticism, by the way? In short, I'll give you this definition. This, this is really short. but Well, yeah, it's one extreme or the other. In short, it's when a person adds to or takes away from God's Word. That's fanaticism, the shortest version, uh, definition I can give you. Is that the same for like 
we're talking here the 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 you know, we're talking about right we're talking about the spiritual context here people can be fanatical in uh, who don't believe in God most people who don't believe in God are fanatics to one extreme or another or in in any kind of sense that's very interesting that you say you ask that because you know when you look at possession there are degrees of possession and and that will also involve fanaticism and, and so in fact when we see an increase in fanaticism we know that there's an increase in demon activity so they really kind of go hand in hand and we're seeing a lot of fanaticism today as we get closer to the return of Christ and we're going to see even more this is why Ellen White says, just before Jesus comes, they're going to have to deal with the same fanatical fanaticisms and, and, and winds of doctrine that the early Adventists had to deal with. Because there's an increase in demon activity. Did you also notice that the mob was led, she says they're led into a frenzy? What causes that? Well... I mean that's a real open question, isn't it? There are, can be several things that we uh, that can cause that, and we'll get. I think we'll get more into it when we discuss what things can open a person up to be possessed of demons. But I find it very interesting and, and actually pertinent that such methods uh, are used by the Church Antichrist to prepare a crowd, especially made up of young people, uh, to hear the Pope speak. Have you ever paid any attention to that? They get the crowd into a frenzy. And their main method is to use music to bring the crowd into a frenzy. And they do this almost every time before the Pope comes out and addresses, especially the younger generation. Um, I'm not so sure he, he does it before, you know, a, an older, a group made up of older, you know, pilgrims. But the younger generation, they use rock music, and they really get them um, into a big frenzy. And what happens is, uh, you know, it, it it does away with their reasoning capabilities, see? So they don't pay much attention to what he's actually saying. It also opens your mind up for, you know, uh, to be mesmerized, to be hypnotized. We'll get into that later on. Uh, did you also notice that in each example we looked at, before that the church leaders had uh, a, a profession of godliness. But they were at a point where they denied the power of Christ to change their character. Jesus described them one time as whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. And that's a big flag to pay attention to, isn't it? You see these uh, supposed ministers of the gospel today that's you know, flowery on the outside. That's what Christ meant by whited sepulchers. You know, they would, uh, people would uh, decorate the tombs outside. Oftentimes, the more wealthier people had gardens, like flower gardens on the outside of a tomb. It looked really good, but inside it, the tomb is what? It's a dead person, isn't it? So, we know that demons can possess animals, right? Satan spoke through a serpent. Uh, and many demons took a herd of swine to their death, right? And here in Matthew we see that demons turned a crowd into a furious mob rioting against Christ. 
Now, I want to look at examples where people actually choose to be an agent of Satan and thus volunteer to be possessed by a demon or demons. I want to read to you a, a quote from the Great Controversy. This is from page 516. Page 516. Those possessed with devils are usually represented as being in a condition of great suffering. Yet there were exceptions to this rule. For the sake of obtaining supernatural power, some welcomed the satanic influence. These, of course, had no conflict with the demons. Of this class were those who possessed the spirit of divination, Simon Magus, Elimus the sorcerer, and the damsel who followed Paul and Silas at Philippi. Now I want to look at these examples that she gives here. So let's start in the book of Acts, chapter 8. We'll go to Acts chapter 8, begin with verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Look at verse 7. It says, For unclean spirits crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. Where did he go to? He went into Samaria, right? Put that in the back of your mind as we go on. And it says, And many taken with palsies, and that were lame, were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. Isn't that interesting? Verse 13. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. What was the first work? First of all, what was the first work mentioned that was the result of Philip's ministry? It said that he cast out unclean spirits, right? And so, here, these were apostles that had received the early reign power of the Holy Spirit. And they were casting out demons, and they were speaking in tongues, and they were healing the sick, right? Remember in part two of this series that we learned that these would be the signs, these same things. These same things that, that we see here. These would be the signs that would follow the disciples who would do his, the work of Jesus in the last battle with the beast. You remember we talked about that? But this man here in Acts 8 is usually spoken of as Simon Magus. And uh, they called him Magus because that, it's from the Greek word magos and it means sorcerer or magician. And according to Justin Martyr, he was born at uh, Gito, a village there in Samaria. Now, when it says magic, magic here refers to the arts practiced by the Magi of the East 
who claim to be enchanters and astrologers and diviners. Um, they claim to interpret dreams. You remember the, the wise men that came from Persia seeking the Christ child were called magi. Now at that time, they were actually closer to priests and they were very revered. But at this time, here, it got to where that uh, the term magi had kind of become perverted. They were looked on more as, oftentimes looked on as like almost like snake oil salesmen, sort of, you know. Even though they, they had certain powers that seemed to be from God. But in some undefined way, Simon Magus claimed to be an incarnation of divine power. And he possibly linked himself with the Messiah. You know, Jewish messianic hopes set a pattern for imposters. And it helped them to secure a following of people and thus the, you know, they became wealthy, see. Because his deceptions, he had great success. Every, we just read there, every class of people believed in him as having some supernatural characteristics. They considered him a great man, from God. Then we're told that Simon believed and was baptized. Sounds like another miraculous miracle of God, doesn't it? Simon was very impressed by the miracles he saw and accepted Philip's statements um, as to the death and resurrection of Christ, but he didn't develop a personal faith. His was sort of the faith of which, you know, James talks about there in James 2. Faith without the works, uh, without the fruits of godly works, right? What did we talk about before? It's, it, it was a professing godliness but denying the power thereof. There was no change in the life. Yet Simon understood enough to be baptized, although, as again, as his later attitude showed, his baptism um, it didn't reveal a new birth in Christ. In fact, Luke draws a distinction between the belief of the Samaritans and that of Simon. The people were won by Philip's preaching, but Simon was attracted by the wonders and the miracles that he saw. But what's really kind of encouraging here is that even though that was the case, God didn't reject uh, Simon's imperfect faith. He accepted it as kind of like a base on which to to build on. Because God is trying to save everyone, friends. So that's rather hopeful, isn't it? Simon's condition actually was rather similar to that of Judas Iscariot as far as faith and character was concerned. Judas was drawn by what Christ could do for him in the new kingdom, you know, on earth. Simon was drawn by what Christ could do for him to to do all these miracles. Both wanted power for themselves, didn't they? Let's go back to Acts chapter 8. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. 
Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness, and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Sounds like he was really sorrowful, doesn't it? Well, he really wasn't. You know, the history of this man. Um, and who is it Who is it here that's rebuking Simon? It's Peter, isn't it? We'll see later on <laughs> something about that. Peter here, he rebukes Simon. But Simon Magus saw that, his, uh, that, the, that the people were being uh, endowed with abilities, these converts that are being endowed with abilities far greater than what he had. And although he didn't possess the Holy Spirit, he wanted the power that such a possession would bring, right? So he offered money to Peter and John, hoping that he'd be able to purchase what he, he didn't receive freely. And that kind of conduct reveals his faulty character. It uncovers his motives, doesn't it? Those motives that controlled him. And like I said before, he was possessed by a spirit like that of Judas covetousness and then we learn that covetousness is is also idolatry right and this is a theme throughout demon possession idolatry and he didn't desire the holy spirit for himself as a spiritual gift to seal his baptism but he wanted to use that power simon did to dominate others he wanted the external power without having uh, undergone the inward change you see that justified the gift of that, the Holy Spirit. No, he intended to make money out of that ability to impart the Holy Spirit to others as he might decide, see. And what kind of witness would that be for Christ? It's, it's much like the Benny Hens of our day, isn't it? It actually brings reproach to the name of Jesus. And here Peter replied, Thy money perish with thee. Literally, that means, Thy silver be together with thee for perdition. So, Peter expressed his disgust at Simon's offer. But what's, like I said, what's really hopeful is that that, uh, Peter didn't regard Simon's condition as hopeless. Because in verse 22, he urged him to repent and be forgiven. Now, Simon had allowed envy and covetousness to embitter his soul, and and, uh, uh, evil and wickedness became a habit until he was a willing prisoner to these evils and agreed to be possessed by the devil. And in order to sustain uh, the deception... Simon shows by the nature of his plea that he's not moved by genuine repentance. He shows no sorrow. He sees no need of character changes. In fact, he asks only that he be relieved of the threat of punishment. Much like Judas when he tried to return the money. And there's no record of uh, anywhere that he ever repented. So, you know, we can assume that he remained unconverted. But I will share with you here a couple things about Simon that we find in the spirit of prophecy. 
This is from the book The Life of Paul, pages 235 and 236. Remember I said, who was it who rebuked him? It was Peter, wasn't it? Listen listen to the what Simon went on to do here. She says here in this first quote, I'll share two of them. She says, through the deceptive arts of Simon Magus, a Cyprian sorcerer, Felix had induced this princess to leave her husband and to become his wife. Drusilla was young and beautiful and moreover a Jewess. So she was a Jew. She was devotedly attached to her husband who had made a great sacrifice to obtain her. There was little indeed to induce her to forego her strongest prejudices and to bring upon herself the abhorrence of her nation for the sake of forming an adulterous connection with a cruel and elderly profligate. Yet the satanic devices of the conjurer and the betrayer succeeded, and Felix accomplished his purpose. So Felix wanted Drusilla. And so he went into confederation you could say, with Simon Magus, the sorcerer, and bewitched her to commit adultery and leave her husband and her faith. Go on to page 320, well, go back, actually, to page 328, same source, Life of Paul, page 328. About the time of Paul's second arrest, Peter also was apprehended apprehended and thrust into prison. He had made himself especially obnoxious to the authorities by his zeal and success in exposing the deceptions and defeating the plots of who? Simon Magus the sorcerer, who had followed him to Rome to oppose and hinder the work of the gospel. We want to know whatever happened to Simon Magus? He's possessed by a demon and he followed Peter around, followed him to Rome. Nero was a believer in magic and had patronized Simon. He was therefore greatly incensed against the apostle and was thus prompted to order his arrest. And so here was a man in Simon Magus who became enamored with mysticism, astrology, and occult practices and that led him down the road to willingly be possessed by demons. He didn't mind being demon-possessed because he was granted powers to awe and deceive and he made money and he made a name for himself. And beloved, the same contract is signed with the devil every day all over the world, but more notably in a place in California called Hollywood. And I'll touch on that later. I need to get moving here. Let's look at another example. Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, beginning with verse 6. And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. That's a Jewish name, isn't it? I think I think it's Bar-Jesus. I think it means son of Joshua. Verse 7. Which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation. Now the reason they say that, well, I'll get to it in a minute. Um, Elimus the sorcerer withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. 
Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O fool of all, full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the who? Devil. Thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, and what was his name? Sergius Paulus. When he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. There we have this incident. So Bar-Jesus was a Jew, and he was a sorcerer, and they interpret that uh, as uh, Elimus the sorcerer. They called him, it's the same person, essentially. They called him Elimus the sorcerer. <laughs> this Bar-Jesus. And when you look at some of the history you get to read, and you find that pretenders to magic powers were common among the Jews at this time. They traded on the religious prestige of their race, and they boasted, in addition to their sacred books, um, they boasted of spells and charms. Actually, uh, they, they said that the, a lot of this stuff came down from the wise man, Solomon. You know, they built themselves up. And here, Elimus was associated with the deputy of the region. His name was Sergius Paulus, who we're told was a prudent man. He was intelligent. He had discernment. But he dabbled with the occultist practices of black magic. That's why he was with Elimus here. And when, when Elimus saw that Sergius Paulus asked to see Paul and Barnabas, the Bible said there that he withstood them. It means he opposed them. And why did he do that? Well... First of all, he's partly a charlatan, wasn't he? He feared the loss of the influence he thought himself uh, having over the deputy there. He saw his victim emancipating himself, uh, passing from credulity toward him to faith in the gospel. And so Elimus was determined to, to check that off, right? It reminded me, you know, Janus and Jambres withstood Moses in somewhat parallel circumstances with the same sort of satanic endeavor there. But we've learned that this is typical of demon-possessed people. They resist and oppose Christ and anyone who, who is his follower. They speak out against righteous testimony. Remember? But at this point, Sergius Paulus had not yet... He hadn't accepted the gospel though it is probable that both Elimus and he had heard a lot about it since uh, you know the, the, the apostles had arrived there at Salamis. But the sorcerer saw that the proconsul's interest was aroused and he wanted to divert his attention. He didn't want him to call for Paul and, or Saul and Barnabas. Well, Paul and Barnabas. <laughs> but he, this deputy, he was determined to hear from them and he, he asked them to be brought before him. The influence of Elimus was a twisting and misrepresentation of the true, uh, the truth of God. He turned the straight paths of God's making into the crooked ones of man's subtlety. So he was 
essentially he was exercising control to a great degree over Sergius, and thus he had control over the local government. And friends, Satan attacks those in leadership to break them or influence them to do his bidding. If you can gain a leader, right, you also get those who he leads. And we saw this happen with the leaders of Israel and the mob that yelled for Barabbas, didn't we? But Paul was explicit. Notice this example of Paul. He was explicit and unreserved in his condemnation of Elimus. And and that's a lesson for us. The Holy Spirit leads his messengers, friends, to identify and define sin frankly and to condemn it in clear terms. And the Spirit-filled Paul did this very thing in the case of Elimus. Elimus had falsely and selfishly used what knowledge he had to guide others wrongly. Remember, he was a Jew, right? And Satan was using him. And he, he used these things to his own advantage. But now, what had happened? He'd been blinded by God, hadn't he? So what, ha- what, what must he do? He has to seek others to guide his own steps. And so here, Sergius saw the miracle, and he heard the words uh, of Paul, and then he believed that the, the apostles had greater power, and it led to him accepting the message of the gospel. So that was proven to be so superior to what Elimus had been teaching him. And speaking about this, this, this quote here, this is from the Acts of the Apostles, the book Acts of the Apostles, page 169. She says, The sorcerer had closed his eyes to the evidences of gospel truth, and the Lord, in righteous anger, caused his natural eyes to be closed, shutting out from him the light of day. This blindness was not permanent but only for a season that he might be warned to repent and seek pardon of the God whom he had so grievously offended. The confusion into which he, he was thus brought made of no effect his subtle arts against the doctrine of Christ. The fact that he was obliged to grope about in blindness proved to all that the miracles which the apostles had performed and which Elimus had denounced as sleight of hand were wrought by the power of God. The deputy, convinced of the truth of the doctrine taught by the apostles, accepted the gospel. Elimus was not a man of... I found this interesting. She said Elimus was not a man of education, yet he was peculiarly fitted to do the work of Satan. Those who preach the truth of God will meet the wily foe in many different forms. Sometimes it will be in the person of learned, but more often of ignorant men whom Satan has trained to be successful instruments to deceive souls. It is the duty of the minister of Christ to stand faithful at his post in the fear of God and in the power of his might. Thus he may put to confusion the hosts of Satan and may triumph in the name of the Lord. So he, Elimus wasn't well educated. He wasn't you know, one of the learned. And that opened him up to be deceived. In fact, he wanted to be possessed and have that power. 
And this leads me to this example of the demon possession that we find in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 16. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Isn't that rather odd? What have we learned up to this point? Demons, they don't want anything to do with Christ, and they try to deflect, divert. But here's someone who's possessed of a demon following them, and what's she saying? These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Isn't that a true statement? Verse 18, And this did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. This is a very interesting example here. This damsel, that means slave girl. This slave girl had a spirit of divination. In this case, it means a python spirit. Now let me explain that. In Greek mythology... Python was a dragon or a serpent who was thought to have guarded the oracle at Delphi. And Python was famous for predicting future events. But Apollo comes along and he kills this serpent. And then he was later called uh, Pythias. And he became celebrated as the foreteller of future events. And all those who either could or pretended to predict future events were said to be influenced then by the spirit of Apollo Pythias. And oftentimes the priestesses of this false god became greatly agitated. They gave answers apparently from their bellies. I found this very interesting. You know, They would speak, it seemed like, from their bellies when their mouths remained closed. And what does that sound like? Well, they were called ventriloquists. Isn't that interesting? Hezekiah defines Python as a divining demon who is worshipped at Delphi as the symbol of wisdom. Now, that's what kind of divination spirit she had, a Python spirit. Not much is really said about the background of this slave girl, other than that she was slave a slave girl, and possessed of a spirit. And what kind of spirit was it again? It was a python spirit, or Apollos Pythias. And this gives us a clue, really, about her. In Greek mythology, Apollos was who? He was the son of Zeus, wasn't he? He was worshipped as a god. And Greeks and Romans both worshipped these false gods. So it is most likely that this damsel worshipped the false gods of Zeus and Apollo, and etc., and we have seen a thread here, a common thread through all the, our examples, haven't we, of demon possession? We've seen that idolatry is a common thread through these things. Now it's clear that the, the local population believed that the slave girl possessed supernatural abilities. And doubtless that her antics, her wild cries were noted, received as what? Oracles from Apollo. And so, her masters took advantage of her inspiration, 
supposed inspiration. And they made the slave girl give answers to those who paid uh, you know, to find out about future events. As she was called a soothsayer here in the Greek. In fact, it's the only place in the New Testament that that word is used, by the way, for soothsayer. In the Old Testament, the expression of this Greek word is always used for the Hebrew words that, that, that are defined as lying prophets. Isn't that interesting? But Paul and Luke had been in Philippi for a good while and were staying with Lydia, remember? She was a convert. And they were, no doubt, doing work to support themselves and the church. Paul, what did he do? He was a tent maker, right? And Luke, he was a medical missionary. So the people were aware of their presence in the Roman colony, and so Satan, too, was very aware of what, what they were doing, right? And by the way, at that time, it was illegal for a Jew to proselytize a Roman citizen. And Christians looked a lot like Jews, didn't they, in this time? of the church. And they were often lumped together whenever they were persecuted. So they were being watched closely by the locals. So here's this slave girl who is demon-possessed, and she begins to follow Paul as he heads to prayer meeting. Now from the book, The Life of Paul, page 74, listen to this. She says, Day after day, as they went to their devotions, a woman with the spirit of divination followed them, crying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. So here we see it was day after day, as they were going to their devotion, this, this slave girl would follow them. And we've already noted in our studies that demons are not attracted to Jesus. And so to start following one of the apostles around should tell us that Satan wanted to associate himself with the work of the church. And there were many reasons for her to follow Paul and, and Luke and the others and shriek like she did when she was prophesying. For one thing, she was creating a diversion, wasn't she? It was like she was saying, I endorse what they're doing. So it would give her what? It would give her some credibility for the work of Paul and and the followers, right? Another thing is that she thought that Paul may reward her in some way for bringing attention to his ministry. She was in advertising, wasn't she? I mean, she had influence in Philippi as being someone who was inspired by the spirit of Apollo. Not to mention it increased her exposure to others and increased her profit line, right? But it was creating great confusion. And Paul's going... No, we don't work together. You're into idolatry. You are devil-possessed. We have nothing in common in our ministries at all. And you notice it's on his way to daily devotions that the devil started to speak through this girl. And, and what's really amazing is that Paul was very patient about it as the girl did this day after day. She was disrupting the work of the church and finally, what? Enough was enough. There's a limit to what even a Christian can passively endure when the Lord's work is being hindered. Isn't that true? So Paul cast out the devil using the name of Jesus as his authority and the demon had to obey. And the evil spirit couldn't resist that command. His obedience was immediate. What was the result? Well, it caused a great ruckus, didn't it? Paul ended up in jail for doing it. He made the devil very mad. 
In fact, Paul and Silas got beaten because of that. So it's not an easy thing when you take on the devil. Ultimately, many were converted in that city, though. And you got a book in your Bible called the Book of Philippians that's there because of this incident where he cast devils out at that young girl. Let's look at Acts of the Apostles, page 213. I need to speed it up here. Uh, it looks like I'm going to go over friends a little bit. Please be patient. I, I appreciate it. She says, This woman was a special agent of Satan and had brought to her masters much gain by soothsaying. Her influence had helped to strengthen idolatry. Satan knew that his... Well, what is it that Satan wants? He wants worship, doesn't he? He wants to be God. So that makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? She goes on and says, Satan knew that his kingdom was being invaded and he resorted to this means of opposing the work of God, hoping to mingle his sophistry with the truths taught by those who were proclaiming the gospel message. The words of recommendation uttered by this woman were an injury to the cause of truth, distracting the minds of the people from the teachings of the apostles, and bringing disrepute upon the gospel and by them, many were led to believe that the men who spoke with the Spirit and power of God were actuated by the same Spirit as this emissary of Satan. For some time the apostles endured this opposition. Then under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, this is a lesson for us. We get later on here, we're going to talk about how to cast out demons. And the only... One of, the, one of the main things is, is that you have to be inspired of the Holy Ghost to do it. Okay, friends? And this is what she says. They endured it. Then under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, Paul commanded the evil spirit to leave the woman. Her immediate silence testified that the apostles were the servants of God and that the demon had acknowledged them to be such and had obeyed their command. Dispossessed of the evil spirit... And notice this, she says, and restored to her right mind, the woman chose then, the woman chose to become a follower of Christ. Then her masters were alarmed for their craft. They saw that all hope of receiving money from her divinations and soothsayings was at an end, and that their source of income would soon be entirely cut off if the apostles were allowed to continue the work of the gospel. Isn't that remarkable? So if the devil can't possess someone in the, in the church to influence it, and he can't possess a leader of the church uh, to control it, what's he going to do? He's, he'll try to associate with the church someone that is possessed in order to disrupt the work, bring disunity and confusion. And friends, the same power is manifested today and we are witnessing it in the open more and more as the final battle approaches. And I said to you last time that this spiritual war is very real. These enemies of righteousness, these demons are very real and they are on the attack. The Bible examples that we've looked at, they're not fables, <laughs> you know, and the work of Satan didn't stop after being removed from this damsel. There are many people today who choose to be on the side of Satan. 
Many. Millions. Some of them don't even know it. Think of this. God is a God of order. And His church is to be in perfect order. And we've studied that, who and what the church is, and its, its mission and, and uh, proper gospel order. Satan also has his own order and government, and it is all around us, friends. Much of it's veiled from our eyes on purpose by God, so we won't become disheartened. And much of it is veiled by the enemy, so we won't see what he's doing. (laughs) But much of it also is open to our view more and more, and those willing to see will see. Satan's government is very organized. It has multiple facets, just like God's organization does. But the devil's aim, you see, friends, is to remove Christ from every facet of the world. And to do that, you've got to be active in all parts of the world, in all parts of society. And he uses people by possessing them in one way or another. Let me give you an example. Most people have heard of Anton LaVey. Have you ever heard of Anton LaVey? He founded the Church of Satan. LaVey's family moved to California uh, where he spent his early life in the San Francisco Bay Area. He was interested in music, which is interesting, and his parents supported his musical interests and encouraged him to pursue it. But when he turned 16, he left high school to join a circus and and uh, later a carnival, and uh, you know, he he was a roustabout, he was a cage boy for the the big cats. And then he was a musician playing the uh, calliope. That's a steam organ, for those who don't know. LaVey later claimed to have seen that many of the same men attended both the body Saturday night shows at the circus and then the tent revival meetings on Sunday mornings. And that reinforced his increasingly cynical view of religion. And this is the same condition you see through history with those who profess to believe in God but don't have the fruits to show their faith. See? Professing godliness but denying the power of God to change their character, their desires. In the foreword to the German language edition of the Satanic Bible, he cites this hypocrisy as the impetus to defy Christian religion as he knew it. He therefore became more interested in the paranormal, and that led him into the occult. He became a local celebrity in San Francisco, which attracted several famous people, many from Hollywood. He started having meetings with these people to share the paranormal manifestations he learned and the magic that he learned, and this eventually led to his forming the Church of Satan. He wrote many books, friends. You can do the history yourself. He wrote many books. He had many musical albums. One of those albums actually was a satanic mass. LaVey included references to other esoteric and religious groups throughout his writings, claiming, for instance, that the Yazetis and the Knights Templar were carriers of a satanic tradition that had been passed down to the 20th century. And you know something, friends? That's actually true. Well, they is just one in the millions of people that voluntarily work for Satan. But let me tell you about a real mastermind in organizing the forces of darkness against the work of God. This was a man named Aleister Crowley. 
This guy, I'm telling you, he was very much on the side of Satan. He's very famous. You see a lot of those in Hollywood and the music industry that give tribute to and idolize this man. Many bands, like the Beatles, they put his picture on their albums in some form. Aleister Crowley was born in 1875 to a wealthy Plymouth Brethren family. His father was a devout Christian. But after his father died, Crowley rejected this fundamentalist Christian faith to pursue an interest in Western esotericism. That is, ideal, th- th- those are ideas dealing with the inner soul or inner being. Uh, let me give you some examples of esoteric religious movements and philosophies. You have alchemy, astrology, uh, early Christian mysticism, Freemasonry. Gnosticism, Kabbalah, that's a big thing in Hollywood, isn't it? Magic, mesmerism, numerology, Scientology, spiritualism, Taoism, and the Alawites. The Alawites, who are, they're tied with Crowley. As you'll see in a moment, I'll share something with you here in just a second. You know, Aleister Crowley, he's quoted as saying, one would go mad if one took the Bible seriously. But to take it seriously, one must be already mad. That's a quote from Aleister Crowley. As a youth, he bounced around from school to school after being expelled or removed for one reason or another. Having nothing to do with a lack of intelligence, let me tell you. Um, But his lifestyle choices. Excuse me? Yeah, his mother called him um, 666. The, the Antichrist, the beast. She called him the beast. Because they, they, they would have devotions every morning. His father would have devotions and, and Alistair would take the... He wasn't being the devil's advocate. He always took the devil's side in whatever was being talked about. The man was very intelligent. He experimented, though, with drugs, was fascinated with alchemy. Alchemy is a... Uh, philosophical, um, it's a scientific tradition practiced throughout Egypt and Eurasia, which what they try to do, they try to purify or mature or perfect certain objects. Like, you know, turning different metals into pure gold, for example. Crowley was also a bisexual, but he tended more to be homosexual. Isn't that interesting? What do we see happening in our world today? He was eventually educated at the University of Cambridge where he focused his attentions on, of all things, mountaineering. Now remember, he's very wealthy. He inherited a lot from his, his father. Um, he focused you know, on mountaineering and poetry. Uh, he had published a lot of poetry. He never graduated with any degree or specific direction. <coughs> In 1898, he joined the esoteric Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. That's an organization that's devoted to the study and practice of the occult and metaphysics and paranormal activities and those things. And this is where he was trained in ceremonial magic. He married in 1904. He honeymooned in Cairo, Egypt. That's no coincidence, friends. 
And this is where he claimed to have been contacted by a supernatural entity named Iowas, who provided him with the Book of the Law, a sacred text that served as the basis for his religion called Thelemy, or Thelema. The religion is founded upon the idea that the, the 20th century marked the beginning of the Eon of Horus, in which a new ethical code would be followed. Horus was a god of Egypt. You know, there's a movie coming out. It may have already. And it's called The Gods of Egypt. That's why you see more and more and more of these false gods today, friends. But this ethical code, you know what it was? Here's the code. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. This statement uh, indicates that adherents who are known as Thelemites should seek out and follow their own true path in life known as their true will. The philosophy also emphasizes the ritual practice of magic, and that ends with the letter K. When you see a letter K at the end of these things, it means it has to do with the occult, the supernatural. The word Thelema is the English transliteration of the Koine Greek word for will, you see, meaning to will, wish, want, or purpose. I think for us it's better rendered desire. In essence, they were saying that the only law is to do what you desire. Do your passions. You see today a lot of things, the young people and everything, they say, follow your heart. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible tells us to follow Jesus. As Crowley developed the religion, he wrote widely on the topic, as well as producing more, quote, inspired writing that he collectively, uh, collectively termed the Holy Books of Thelema. He also included ideas from occultism, yoga, and both Eastern and Western mysticism, especially the Kabbalah, again, big in Hollywood, Kabbalah is. Crowley's Book of the Law contains information on how to practice magic and witchcraft, as well as the satanic philosophy on those practices. Does Harry Potter come to anyone's mind? By the way, Revelation 11 gives us the history of the French Revolution and the rise of atheism. So it's fitting that in verse 8 here, it says, And their dead bodies, that's the two witnesses of the Old and New Testament, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, talking about France, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also, where also our Lord was crucified. That's because there were many people who were killed uh, at that time. Sodom is symbolic of moral degradation. And that was the condition of France during the Revolution. And Egypt was known for its denial of the existence of the true God and for its defiance of the commands of God. And I think those are fitting symbols for the background of these two agents, uh, LaVey and Crowley, uh, and, and for our culture today in our country, and which we can see around the world as well. But after spending time in Algeria, and I'll, be, I'll wrap it up here, after spending time in Algeria in 1912, he was initiated into another esoteric order, the German-based Ordo Templi Orientis or the OTO. Do a 
history on that, friends. But he rose to become the leader of their British branch, which he reformulated in accordance with his Thelemite beliefs. And through the OTO, Thelemite groups were established in Britain and Australia and North America and France. And, and friends, they are in every state of the United States. In fact, there's a group right here in Lafayette, Indiana. You see, beloved, very much like God's organization, Satanism is broken down into various sects or branches, each containing its own set of beliefs and practices with some more evil than others in their methods. And each has their own set of writings and their own set of books that they abide by. Some sects of Satanism have the Satanic Bible by LaVey. Some have the updated Satan's Bible by Demon Egan. Then there is the Black Book of Satan, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, and I mean, I could go on and on. Wicca uses something called the Book of Shadows, and this also varies in versions. Not to mention the writings of Aleister Crowley that they use as they will. To give you the intent of this man, Crowley was quoted as saying, quote, I was not content to believe in a personal devil and serve him in the ordinary sense of the word. I wanted to get a hold of him personally and become his chief of staff. And I could go on and on about this, but it's not my intention to give you the biography of these evil men you know, that, that ally themselves with Satan or to lay out each branch of his organization. I want to tell you that Satan has a worldwide web of such evil that pervades everything. It is very real. They are in government, education, courts, military, very much control the media, especially the music and movie industries. For a, um, for a good series concerning the media industry and its association with the OTO and Crowley, Look up John, uh, Pastor John Lamacang's series entitled Unclean Spirits. Look it up on uh, YouTube. Very informative. And he came out of the music industry. Pastor Lamacang did. What's that? Oh, goodness. I think it's L-O-M-A-C-A-N-G. Lamacang. I think that's how he spells his name. The bottom line is that we're in a war. And it's coming to an end very soon. And we're going to see incredible things happen in our families and in our churches. We're going to see incredible things happen in the world. And we have to be prepared to deal with this enemy. And it's going to get very intense. And we need to know who he is. We need to know uh, how to defeat him through the power of God. We need to know how to detect. The Holy Spirit will help us with that. And we want to be on the right side. Amen? So the next time we get together, uh, in, in part six, we'll look at how a person opens themselves up to be possessed and how to be protected from it. I want to be prepared, friends, and I want you to be prepared. And I hope you're learning enough to be armed against this most powerful enemy. And he's very powerful. And the only way he can be defeated is through Christ. Amen? Let's, let's have a word of prayer. I appreciate you hanging on with me as I've gone way over. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for 
your Holy Spirit. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Word. It uh, uncovers the works of darkness so that we uh, can recognize and discern them. Uh, It leads us into the paths of righteousness. And so we appreciate your Holy Word oh so much. And uh, we are so thankful for Jesus, that gift that you've given to all mankind. Uh, And that Jesus died for our sins, that he lived a righteous life and shows us the way. He is the truth, the life, and the way. We pray now for the Holy Spirit to be in each one of our hearts and in our minds and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness as we ask forgiveness, Lord, for our sins. And to put the armor upon us as we battle this foe. The battle is going to be intense. You've laid it out in the books of Daniel and Revelation. And we wish to be prepared. We wish to bring glory to thy name. And so we ask humbly for the Spirit to live in us and so live in us as to be a light to the world and to remove the powers of darkness from, the, from surrounding us. We thank you for the angels you send to help protect us and guide us in our walk. We ask that you would continue to send them and to bless them. And we thank you for the Sabbath day. We pray that you will continue to bless us as you've promised for those who keep this day holy. We ask these favors in the blessed name of Jesus, who's so worthy. Amen.